Hello, hello, and welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. Today, I'm talking with my girl, Dr. Stephanie Estima, about tailoring exercise and nutrition to the ever-changing menstrual cycle. It's called cycle syncing, which is important as estrogen and progesterone go through these different phases that affect the whole body. Dr. Stephanie does a lot. She is the founder of Hello Betty, a community centered around female empowerment through health and business coaching. She's a doctor of chiropractic, host of The Better Podcast, and creator of The Estima Diet, plus author of the best-selling book, The Betty Body. She's been featured on magazine covers, Thrive Global, and The Huffington Post. Plus, she's amassed over three and a half million article reads on medium.com. It was an absolute pleasure talking with her today as she broke down the different phases of the cycle and explained how hormones impact exercise choices and exercise in turn impacts those hormones. Here's a clip from today's conversation. Any type of high intensity activity, if you're doing that four or five, six times a week and you're saying, hi, I wonder why I have this extra belly weight. I have this weight loss resistance. The guys feel great because they're more like the sun. They have more of a rhythm that follows. It's more of a circadian rhythm. Now, certainly we have circadian rhythms as well, but I always like to say men are like the sun and women are like the moon, right? Women have a bit of a longer, we have a bit of a longer cycle, which plays out over the course of on an average 29.5 days versus a guy who basically resets everything every 24 and a half hours or so. So we are changing the way that we eat. We're changing the way that we exercise throughout the month to match up with, to live in harmony with the ever-changing hormonal landscape. So that's really kind of in a nutshell what cycle syncing means. That's just a small taste of the amazing show we have for you today. Hey, before we get started, I want to talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that, of course, is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. And if you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you are placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health, and Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 25 different labs in one single place. Thank goodness, no need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. So if you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's get on with the show. Dr. Stephanie Estima, thank you so much for being on the Root Cause Medicine podcast. I am honored. I was saying to you in the pre-chat that you asked me. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, you have an amazing podcast yourself. And I say all the time to the people at Rupa Health that someday when I grow up, I want to be like Dr. Stephanie Estima's podcast. (laughs) And I see all the wonderful guests you have on and the way that you educate the world in your book, which for those who are watching the video, will see it directly behind me. And I am just thrilled, honored that you're here. Thank you. I'm excited for our conversation today. Well, today we're talking about cycle syncing and exercise. And I'm really excited to dive into that because I've been working more with athletes and how their cycle is largely affected by their exercise and vice versa. And you were honestly one of the first early people that I started following who was talking about this. You 
put it throughout your whole book. You talk about it on your social media website, what have you. So I'm going to pick your brain about that for the people. And you don't even have to be an athlete, which is what I love. You can be just a woman exerciser and realize that your cycle, your hormones totally affects whether you're able to run far, run fast or jump high or lift or not and what to do about that. So yeah, 100%. Let me start off first, though. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Give people a little background on who you are and what you stand for, and then we'll jump in. Sure. Yeah. So my background, I always say I grew up in chiropractic. So that's my original training. That's the professional degree that I hold. And throughout my training, as a whether it was in chiropractic school or post-grad education, always was fascinated and just had a love affair. It still exists today with brain metabolism and how the things that we do affect our brain. And it's always been very interesting to me that it's the organ that we can't see, we can't touch it, but it's there all the time. It's the master control organ. And it's right now controlling the muscles in my mouth and my tongue to form the words that are coming out of my mouth, et cetera. So I've always had just a love affair with functional neurology and neurology in general. Of course, in chiropractic, I have very heavy focus in the neuromusculoskeletal system. So how the brain affects our posture, our movement patterns, compensatory or otherwise, and spent 16 years in a brick and mortar practice, practicing in Toronto, Canada. And in that practice, there was, of course, the what people might think of the traditional chiropractic piece, which is the rehabilitation and movement pattern and getting rid of pain. But I very quickly realized that's just the mechanical piece, right? So there's also a chemical component, let's say even just with pain, if you have systemic inflammation because of the foods that you're eating or the medication that you're taking, that is going to affect your prognosis. It's going to affect your experience of pain. So I was just naturally doing nutritional consulting and designing, well, for lack of a better word, diets. But when I say diet, it's like the food that you normally eat on a regular basis for my patients. And in that vein of loving everything brain came across the ketogenic diet now, I don't know how many, maybe 2015, 2016, something like that. And was really amazed at not only the origins of the ketogenic diet, which was the diet that was used before we had anti-medication that would prevent seizures, was the intervention of choice in the 20s and 30s for helping children and adults to reduce their frequency, severity, and duration of seizures. So kind of went down that rabbit hole introduced a ketogenic diet in practice, and then kind of coming around to my work today, very quickly noticed, again, there was like a really distinct difference in the outcomes of a ketogenic diet in the male population. So my male patients and my female patients. So and this was especially true and this, this pattern kept coming up over and over again, where we'd have a husband and wife team. Let's say they were you know, patients of the practice and they joined the ketogenic program that we were running. And the guy would come in and be like, doc, this is just the best. Like I've dropped 15 pounds, like testosterone's through the roof. I feel like I did when I was 20. And the woman is like, I don't understand. I've been eating the same thing as my husband. I've dropped a pound, maybe that. And I feel like crap. So that really started me on this more really born out of curiosity around why this ketogenic, the, the same stimulus, the same application, we were seeing different outcomes in these two cohorts, if you will, or two patient populations, right? And 
through my own experience and then kind of experimenting in the clinic really did come to this body of work, which we're going to talk about today, which is how, and I, I talk about this idea that like men are not, women are not sort of smaller versions of men with just pesky hormones. We actually behave differently by way of our menstrual cycle and hormones that we'll talk about today. And we have to nuance and we have to change the way that we eat, the way that we move and the way that we think. And that that is distinct from our male counterparts. So that's kind of the back of the envelope history. My love of brain, love of diet. I myself have competed in like figure competitions. I've always had like just a huge reverence for the human body and the ability of the body to adapt and the application of tenants like the ketogenic diet and how we need to change that for women. For women, I love that because we get left out of a lot of research or a lot of research, I should say, is extrapolated and applied to us, those of us who are cycling as if it's same, same, Correct. right? Like let's say exercise and exam. How many times have women been told hit CrossFit going all in is like, that's great. You should do it all the time. It's what you should do. And then women are like, but I feel worse or I got injured or I feel like sometimes it, it feels really good and other times it feels really bad. But yes, yet my male counterpart feels good all the time. Like what the heck? What's, what is this about? And that's where the idea of this cycle syncing came. So can you just explain like, what does that word even mean? Yeah. So this is a word that's more commonly used now. And it basically means that we are changing the way that we eat. We're changing the way that we exercise throughout the month to match up with, to live in harmony with the ever-changing hormonal landscape, if you will, that a woman who is cycling, who's in her reproductive years, that includes our perimenopausal women, as her hormonal landscape changes, we are now altering the way that we're eating, the way that we're exercising and moving, the way that we're recovering. We're noticing some of these ebbs and flows and changes in, let's say, that hormonal milieu and adapting to it. So that's really kind of in a nutshell what cycle syncing means. And I think that to your point, I think it was, I want to say it's 2017 where they the NIH mandated that women cannot be excluded. I mean, we're in 2022 now. Like that is an incredible, like 2017 was not that long ago. And we used to be excluded because the menstrual cycle was considered a confounding variable in research because we were too, we were not controllable. And as I always say, it's like, we're extra. We've always been extra. And we will always continue to be extra, but we should honor that. We should own that and say, okay, yes, I have this extra layer of complexity that I might as well take the time to get to know and how my unique bio-individuality, how my unique menstrual cycle, how I need to adapt so that I can support my cells, my body in a way that she expects and requires. Because you said something about like doing the CrossFit over and over again or doing the Peloton. And you see, we'll get into heart rate and we'll get into exercising today, I'm sure. But I see so many women that are like, I do this and I'm not throwing shade on Peloton, not nothing like, right. I don't want a letter from, but (laughs) any type of like high intensity activity. If you're doing that four or five, six times a week and you're saying, hi, I wonder why I have this extra belly weight or I can't see, I have this weight loss resistance. It might be because of what you just said, which is the guys feel great because they're more like the sun. They have more of a rhythm that follows. It's more of a circadian rhythm. Now, certainly we have circadian rhythms as well, but I always like to say men are like the sun and women are like the moon, right? Women have a bit of a longer 
we have a bit of a longer cycle, which plays out over the course of, on an average, 29.5 days versus a guy who basically resets everything every 24 and a half hours or so. So yeah, we're very different. And that's my long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> like, what is cycle thinking? Well, let me tell you the history. Let me go deep into it. No, yeah. but this is so important. <laughs> Several years ago, I had a thyroid expert say to me, well, Carrie, you know, even thyroid hormone follows the female cycle. Meaning, so so many women are on thyroid medication and are struggling with their thyroid and they go and get their thyroid tested. And let's say you even just get a TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone. If you test it close to and around ovulation, so in the middle of your cycle-ish area, ovulation, everything goes up. You, a lot of your hormones go up. It's a big, it's like the Bellagio fountains. Like everything <laughs> goes up, right? For To release the egg, so does TSH. Now, I'm not saying it goes up several points, but he was saying to me, in all my thyroid work, I have noticed there is a definite track, it's a rhythm. So if a woman is gonna even test her thyroid, you should be wary of her cycle. So always test at ovulation or test away from ovulation, but be consistent because you may actually be changing her thyroid medication or supplementation or whatever you're doing because you don't realize that the all these hormones are going up at the same time around ovulation. And even just that, even just that is not taken into account in research, right, in the literature. And I would say the majority of Women don't know. Most of them don't. That when they go get their, they know like 99%, they just, they're like, oh, I'm due for my thyroid check. I'm going to go get my blood checked for thyroid, even if it's just. Right. With no consideration of where they are. Yeah. No, nobody said, hey, make sure you get it away from ovulation. Maybe the best time is on your period. Be very consistent every time because I love that you said we're extra. I will take it. I <laughs> am 100% extra and you know that, but it's in a good way. And so when did you first notice on yourself? I mean, you are. Miss cover of a magazine and big in fitness. And when did you notice that your cycle really played a role in your ability to exercise or how you exercised? Yeah, well, I'm going to be totally honest and transparent for you and your listeners. It wasn't until my 30s. Like I've always felt, I always had this like, God, I hate my period. Like, and I write about this in, in my book, The Betty Body, that it always just felt like a punishment for being a woman. It's like, here it is again. And I had to medicate and I would just ignore it because. I didn't really put it together. I was like, if I just take some anaprox or I just take some mitol or whatever, I can just punch through the, whatever I need to punch through rather than honoring my body's need for rest and recovery. And we can talk a little bit about that, but I'll say that it wasn't really until my even like really mid to late thirties where I started. And this was after I had children, like I looked at my husband and I was pregnant. So I had no trouble with, no trouble with fertility. He is cute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then the, in that post, sort of in that post child, that postpartum where things can be a little up and down and all over the place for several years because you are nutritionally, physically, spiritually, everything depleted in those years, really started paying attention to how my cycle was changing. And I went through, I want to say I was 37 or eight. I was going through a divorce. And my clinic burned down. So there was like an electrical fire in the clinic and like the whole thing was like reduced. The only thing that was left was my degree. I have no idea how my degree didn't get singed, but it was, that's the only thing that was left. And then we had these little activities for kids who were coming into the practice. Like they would make these little pictures. There's one picture that was left from like my- Oh my goodness. This, so anyway, went away with nothing. Took my children on a trip like later that summer, you know, we were finalizing the divorce. Like, again, you can imagine my cycle was a gong show, still not putting it together. 
went to Italy for three weeks or so, got a lot of movement, got a lot of sunshine, was sleeping finally for the first time, like through the night and noted it and got my period while I was in towards the end of that trip. And because I had had the sun exposure, because I was managing my stress a little better on that vacation, because I was eating foods that weren't toxic, nutrient devoid garbage, noticed almost instantly like that before that point, before I had my period, that bleed week, I would be medicating with really heavy medication several times a day. I would always bring, I think I've told this to you just maybe personally or offline, but I would always to practice if it was the first or second day of my period, I would take two pairs of pants with me because a hundred percent of the time I would bleed through the pair of pants that I went to work with. And I would get up out of a consultation, like let's say I was seeing a patient, let's say, and we were talking about their x-rays or ultrasound or whatever. I would get out of the chair in such a way that I would turn the chair around so the patient would never see potentially that there had been an accident, right? Right, right. Wow. So anyway, in Italy, had a glorious period. Like we're at the beach and I was still able, I didn't have to medicate. I didn't have to hole up in the hotel room all night long or all day long. I was still able to go to the beach and like not worry about it. And I was like, what happened? What was this big change here? Like, yes, I get it. Food, everything is like a little bit more dolce vita in Italy. What were some of the things that even though the environment changed, it's still my body that did all the work. So can I reproduce this back home? And then kind of started on this journey to understanding the difference. And then at that point, I was already running that nutrition program that I had mentioned before. So just to kind of with the timeline to kind of complete the timeline, if you will, for your listeners, then started saying, okay, to my females, I was like, okay, so you've only lost like a pound or two in the last month. Why don't we start changing the way that you eat with your cycle and see if that makes a difference, right? Instead of trying to white knuckle your way all the way through the month eating the same way, let's start playing with a couple of things. And then that's when I started noticing for my patients and myself that I was actually able to maintain what I had experienced in Italy back in Toronto, where we have all four seasons and we don't have the gelato that they have or the espresso. Or the beach. (laughs) Or the beach, yeah. (laughs) Not like Italy anyway. (laughs) So at a high level, taking all that knowledge, if somebody's listening to this right now, and don't worry, we are literally going to break down each step of your cycle and talk about what's changing and what you can do. At a high level, if somebody's listening to this going, that's me, I am bleeding through everything. I have terrible PMS. I take a lot of medication. My periods suck all the things, what do you see improve with your women that you work with as they start to honor their cycle, understand their cycle and change with their cycle as opposed to everything is the same all the time? The first thing that we often see is the bleed week improving. So we will see the quality of the flow improving. So whereas before you might have, let's say you were estrogen dominant and we'll define that in a moment, but let's say there's too much estrogen in the second half of your cycle. Often what we see, I always say like your bleed week is kind of like a report card. It's like telling you how you did over the course of the month. So we would see improvement in clotting. So normally I will say that some clotting is okay as long as it's smaller than let's say the size of a quarter, it's around the size of a dime, that's fine. But as long as it's not only clots, right? So some clotting, but we're kind of measuring the size the flow of blood as well. So before, like I was saying, I had this like technique of like turning my chair so that no one would see that I'd stained the chair. So that heaviness of flow, certainly it's going to be heavier the first and maybe second day of your bleed week, but then it shouldn't be so much like the delta or the amplitude shouldn't be so high that you're like bleeding through pants and things like that. 
And then of course, the duration we will also see improving as well. So ideally you're bleeding somewhere between like four and six days. That's sort of like what I would say is optimal. And then the color of the blood as well. So looking at the color of the blood, it should be kind of like a dark or even like a bright red at the beginning. And then as we go through the bleed week, we will see it tends to be brown, a little bit more brown. That's just like the oxidized sort of older blood that's kind of still hanging around and has yet to be passed. So usually the first thing that you'll see is an improvement in flow and also even symptoms as well. So leading up to your bleed week, a lot of women will say like the couple of days before, the two to three days before you actually start bleeding is when most women will feel the most sensitive. They might experience the most cramping. They might feel the most uncomfortable, brain foggy. And just as an aside, I'll say that wherever you are right now, however old you are, that little three-day window is almost like a glimpse into what menopause might be for you, right? So depending on where you are, because what you're seeing essentially there is an acute drop in your estrogen and your progesterone hormones, which then leads to this ischemic presentation. And then we have the uterine lining. We shed the uterine line, which is what the blood is in, in your pad or your cup or whatever. So if you're very sensitive that week, if you feel like you can't focus, if you feel moody, if you're in pain, this is a window for you into the future in a way it can be predictive of how you might experience menopause if you're not making the appropriate changes, let's say that you should. Yes. So that would be, that would be like some of the first things that we see improving is like the leading up to the bleed week is better. So that symptomatic presentation is better. They're still able to engage in their activities of daily living without needing to heavily medicate or take time off or take a sick day or whatever. And then the actual bleed week as well is not preventing them from doing the activities that they normally would otherwise. So let's stay with bleed week. You've got your period. You're listening right now. You have your period. What is happening? Where are your hormones at? And where are you on the exercise spectrum, on the food spectrum when you're talking with your women? Sure. Yeah. So in terms of hormones, I think that's maybe a better, like, let's just kind of lay the groundwork for what's happening in that first week. So the week before, as I mentioned, that little mini menopause, right? So we have this big acute drop in estrogen, all of a sudden, big acute sudden drop in progesterone. And that sort of, it continues that way through that first half, at least of your bleed week. So the first three to four days, let's say your estrogen levels stay relatively low. Actually, everything is pretty low except for follicular stimulating hormone, which this I'm talking to the choir, but for my listeners, FSH does kind of what it sounds like. It's stimulating the follicle, right? Because the whole point of your cycle is to ovulate. It's not to bleed, even though she's the popular girl, period gets all the attention, but the whole point of your cycle is to ovulate. So what happens in those first two weeks is you'll see follicular and particularly in the first week, follicular stimulating hormone we see at a high level because she's trying to get those follicles to develop and mature. And then there's going to be one, there'll be only the chosen one, that one follicle, right? With that egg, with that precious egg in the soil, as you men are the seed and women are the soil. So we have that egg that is going to be released eventually from that follicle. So in terms of food and in terms of exercise, I am a big proponent. And this is like one of the hills I'm going to die on for women. I love it. Which is lift heavy weights all through your cycle, all through your cycle, heavy weights all through your cycle. However, the way that you lift changes. So we'll kind of go through this. I, I think where you're going is like week by week. And what I like in, in week one, so what would be normal for you in week one, that week of your period, that bleed week? 
is maybe the first or second day, maybe you are a little crampy and that's normal because the uterus is contracting. So if you've had children, you understand what that uterine contraction might feel like to a lesser degree. You might feel that day one, maybe day two of your cycle. So maybe there's some lethargy, low energy. If you want to take a day off or two there, like have at it, no problem. Once you kind of get into the flow, womp womp. Once you get into the <laughs> once you get into the flow of things, I'm a nerd. I just think that these, like, these things endlessly amuse me. Okay, so when you get into kind of the rhythm, let's say of your lead week, I really love moderate rep sets here. So I talk about this in the Betty Body, and I go into detail. And there's like workout programs and stuff in there, but at somewhere between like eight to twelve, let's say repetitions. That still means that you're lifting heavy, though. No, I'm not throwing shade on any fitness influencer, but these are not two pound pink dumbbells. These are heavy weights for eight reps or heavy weights for 12 reps. By the end of the 12th rep, you shouldn't be able to do 13. So that doesn't mean, oh, it's like, it's the easy week. I get to just do something that I can punch out eight times and be mindless about. You want to be very concerned with your form and it's heavy weights for eight to 12 reps. In terms of food, I typically like because we don't have progesterone. So progesterone kind of takes a vacation for the first two weeks. And we know that progesterone is a potent stimulator of our appetite, slows down the bowel, slows down like our GI tract and our digestive system and our our bowel movements really. It's actually a really great week for if you want to experiment with a longer fast or experiment with carbohydrate restriction. This is a great week for it. And most people are like, what? I'm like a ravenous beast on my period. But once you start paying attention to kind of some of the ebbs and flows and we remove some of the inflammation that you might be experiencing, you'll notice that your appetite, it should lower in that first week. So I do like there to be, if you want, you can play with a longer fast. Longer to me means more than like a daily fast. So I have usually through the month, I will practice some type of time-restricted eating schedule somewhere between 12 to 14 or 16 hours, depending on my mood and how I'm sleeping and how I'm exercising and when I'm training, et cetera. But this week you can play with, if you wanted to do a longer one, if you're like, Hey, let me try like a 24 hour, like, let me do like a dinner to dinner kind of thing. See if I can do that. This would be a great week to try it because you're not going to be as hungry. And a ketogenic diet, like carbohydrate restriction is another thing you might play with this week. So restricting more carbohydrates here would be wonderful. I am an advocate for eating meat. I think especially this week is important because you are losing a lot of minerals and vitamins and I like you're losing a lot of blood. Like the reason why we tell men to give blood every three months or six months or so is to mimic the menstrual cycle because we lose blood every month. So you need to be consuming foods, in my opinion, in my very humble opinion, and this is not based on any ethical or environmental slant is meats are really like animal proteins are a really great way to replenish the lost ferritin. And it can be if you're sort of eating, let's say some liver and you're having some organ meats and you're also having some, what we might call traditional meats, which is like the skeletal muscle, you're going to get a full complement of your essential amino acids. You're going to be getting your B vitamins. You're going to be getting all the things that we I typically see vegetarians and vegans be deficient in. And that's, I say that with love. It's not, if you're a vegetarian or you're a vegan and this is, doesn't fit you, you can certainly get your protein requirements with plants. Like you can get there with plants. You do have to do your, we'll say your jurisprudence, let's say, in learning how to combine foods to make sure that you're getting that full complement of amino acids and that you're not running deficient in your B vitamins, which is like kind of the two things that I see the most common 
kind of happening in that population. So exercise is heavy, but it's eight to 12. Ketogenic diet is great this week. And I would also say you can play with fasting as well. It's amazing. When my period starts, first of all, I'm ravenous a couple of days before. I know it's coming. I don't sleep as well. I'm ridiculously ravenous. I want all of the chocolate and all of the world, dark chocolate, all the dark chocolate and all of the world. I tease my friends, go buy chocolate because when I go to the store, I'm buying all of it. And then as soon as my period comes, it's like, and I can't do long, I intermittent fast quite often, but the couple days before my period, I can't, I can't do long intermittent fasting, which is fine. When I wake up hungry, I eat, like I just listen to my body. As you should. Yeah. And I've been doing this long enough to know. I know sometimes people are jumping into this new and that the signals are confusing and I understand that, but I'm just further ahead in the chapters, right? You and I are further ahead than chapters of the same book. Some people are in chapter one, you and I are way up there in 25. So, and then my period starts and immediately my hunger goes away. I don't crave chocolate all the time. I can do 16 hour fasts without an issue. And it just, I just love it. I just love the biochemistry and physiology so much that in literally in, in a one night flip, my body's like, cool, not pregnant, got her period. All the switches in my electrical box change. <laughs> like, I'm I'm a whole new person. (laughs) I love that. I, like you, have so much reverence for anatomy and physiology and how we, it's so true. Like I talk about this in week four and we'll get there, we'll expand on it, Mm -hmm. but you should be eating more that week. Yeah. And you should, if you're wanting the dark chocolate. I mean, I think you should have dark chocolate all the time, but. Oh, completely. Yeah. (laughs) But if you want more of it that week, you should have more of it that week. And there should be zero shame and zero guilt around it. Because I think that we all, have grown up in this sort of, and this is like, I have boys at home. I love men. This is not an anti-men thing, but we live in this world that is designed by men for men. Even we can even extend that into the corporate world, right? It's like, what's rewarded in the corporate world? Getting up early, doing your 5am, 5am club, blah, blah, blah. And then going to work early, getting all the meetings. And then what happens after work? You go and you do your five to seven drinks. You're socializing with your buddies or whatever. And then you go home and then you go to sleep and then you repeat it all again. Well, that's again, a circadian rhythm. Like women for, I mean, we'll get into this, but we need actually more sleep than men do. Yeah. So getting up and doing the 5am club, I mean, that may or may not work for your lifestyle, but you shouldn't try to force that if that's what you think you should be doing. And men, they have a lot of testosterone in the morning, right? Which is like, they should wake up. They're supposed to, ready to go. With an erection. Yeah. Way to go. Good for you guys. Right. And then as the day goes on, of course, our testosterone lowers. And then we see that they're more estrogen dominant, let's say in the second half of the day. And that's corporate culture, right? It's like we put them in their man cave. They do all their work early in the morning. They get there before no one's in the office. And then in the afternoon, they're taking meetings. They do the Sanka set or the five to seven drinks with people because they're more chatty at 5 p.m. than they are at 10 a.m. At 10 a.m. They're like cavemen. At 5 p.m. They're ready to talk and they're ready to have a beer and socialize. So I know that's a tangent, but all that to say that the world is designed for a lot of the hormonal cadence that men have. And there's going to be times in your cycle, we're about to get there in week two, Mm -hmm. where you very much have more testosterone, where you very much are more extroverted and flirty and your receptivity to sex, let's say, is even is amplified, but it's not every day. Well, let's go into that. So now we are out of our period and we're into week two. So we're into our pre-ovulatory week, as we call it. Yeah. What's happening with our hormones here? And again, exercise, diet, emotions, like what's happening? Yeah, great. I love, this is a fun week because one of the things we were just alluding to it is testosterone, which is kind of, it's sort of flat all through the month. 
But this is the week where we do see an amplification of testosterone. And Mother Nature, she's a wily minx. Like she knows that in a couple of days, there may be an egg to be fertilized. So what does she do? She ramps up your testosterone, which of course is famous for its effect on libido. So what's that going to do? It's going to make you hornier. You're going to be more receptive to having sex with your partner or partners. Your, the sensitivity of your clitoris is going to also be amplified. So you will orgasm easier and they will be much more powerful. And so you have to, you should know that because if you want children or if you don't want children, you may choose this week to either have at it with like, let's say penetrative sex or knowing that you don't want children. Maybe there's other avenues that you might explore with your partners or your loved ones. So testosterone is coming up. So is estrogen. So estrogen has this meteoric rise. It's actually quite astounding. Like it will go from, I don't know, 20, 40, 60 picograms per milliliter. And I've seen it as high as 600 picograms per milliliter. Like I've seen it really high. Normally we'll see it up to like 200, maybe 300. But this is also, these are two anabolic hormones, meaning growth, right? These are two hormones that are- Build. Build, build, (laughs) build, right? So estrogen is now trying to finish what follicular stimulating hormones started, right? So we see estrogen elevated for maybe 50 or so hours in that meteoric rise that we were talking about, followed by luteinizing hormone, which is another hormone we haven't touched on really, but luteinizing hormone again, sort of flat everywhere else in the cycle. And then this week following that 50 hour rise, we see, I call it like luteinizing hormone. I always, I call it like my uncle Ralph. So it's like my uncle, I have an uncle Ralph. He's lovely. He always comes in to like every family dinner after we've all eaten and he'll come to me like, Steph, how are you? Whack right on the back of my thing, which one year, first time he did, I kind of spit my food out, which is exactly what luteinizing hormone does. It goes all the way up very acutely about 10 or so hours after estrogen and then comes back down. And the whole point is to help the follicle release the egg. So that's what's happening from a hormonal perspective. From a physical appearance perspective, let's say estrogen is going to plump up your lips. It's going to make your skin glowy. Your eyes are white. You're bright eyed and bushy tailed. It's like natural Botox, natural fillers, all the things. Testosterone, as we mentioned, it's going to have a profound effect on your sex drive. And from a sort of social perspective, you're going to be much more. I always say like, I can people this week. Like I can people like a boss this week because I'm like, I want to chat to people. I want to sit down and learn about their story. Like I want to learn, I want to know everything about people this week. And you will find that you're going to be more extroverted. This is a great time for you to be, let's say networking or even doing presentations. They've done studies where they've taken a picture of a woman's face all through her cycle and statistically significant results with men rating the woman's face only, just her visage as more attractive in this second week versus the others. And that's under the influence again of estrogen and testosterone, as we've been mentioning. So from a nutritional perspective, this is this through line of like lift heavy weights all through the cycle. This is a week where we see testosterone. It's a very special week because testosterone, this is the only time where we see it rise. So I actually like to change the way that we eat to complement that, to support that. So I like to increase the protein content, like the amount of protein, let's say that we're consuming. So whereas let's say in week one, 
You might've been doing a ketogenic style diet, typically a 70, 20, 10 breakdown, like 70% fat, 20% protein, which is like a moderate protein restriction as well. And then low on the carbohydrates. This week, I actually like that to be totally flipped on its head. So I like to double the protein and double the carbohydrates. So doubling the protein would bring you up to 40% protein. Doubling the carbs from last week would bring you up to 20%. And the reason for that, of course, is when you're consuming protein, and I'm putting the caveat here of like a complete protein, you are going to drive something called muscle protein synthesis, which is just like what it sounds. You're producing muscle. So the more protein that you consume, you will drive the, you will help to drive muscle growth. And we'll tie this in with training in just a moment, but I want to explain the carbohydrate piece as well. So carbohydrates have unfortunately been demonized by many people in the ketogenic community. And I think that if you're having a lot of processed carbohydrates, this does become an issue. But when you are training regularly, you need carbohydrates, number one, to help repair, but most importantly, it helps prevent muscle protein breakdown. So protein synthesis. So we're amping up protein synthesis through increasing our protein intake. And then we're also preventing muscle protein breakdown. Ladies in perimenopause, listen up because you have to preserve your muscles at all costs. And this is a unique time in your life where you're kind of coming up to a point where you're going to be in a low estrogen and a low testosterone environment. So take advantage of this week. Make sure that you are building protein in the kitchen and you're, we'll talk about in the gym. Actually, we'll do that now. So I was saying in week one, moderate sets, right? Still heavy. Here, I like the weight to increase. So you're lifting heavier, but now you're only doing it for like five reps, maximum eight, like five to seven, five to eight reps. So it's still heavy, but it's heavy for that set. It's heavy for the amount of times you're going to lift or squat or press or whatever you're doing. So you can actually have the exact same workout all month long. And I recommend that because that's how we see results is by doing like fitness is not that confusing. It's like, we need to have compound movements followed by some smaller isolated. You do, let's say you do pull, like you do a squat before you work your calves, let's say. So you want to have things like squats and lunges and hip thrusters. You want to have overhead presses and pulls and push-ups. These are compound movements, but you're just changing how it happens over the month. So in week one, you were doing like eight to 12. Now you're doing five to seven. But higher weight. It's a higher weight, correct. Those are some of the considerations I would say. The other thing I'll say, and I didn't mention cardio in week one, so I'll just come back to that in a sec. I don't like heavy fat, like long fasts here as well. So this is the week before you ovulate. Your ovaries are literally always scanning the environment for threat. If you're doing like 24, 36, 72 hour, whatever fasts, right before you ovulate, you can potentially affect ovulation. And the reason why I say that is the ovaries themselves, when we kind of look at the density of mitochondria in them, and you know this, 100,000 mitochondria per oocyte, something ridiculous like that. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah. Versus even if you just look at the liver, kind of an important organ, we'd be dead in like four minutes you know, if we didn't have our liver working. 2000 mitochondria per hepatocyte. Okay. 100,000 per oocyte in the ovaries, 2000 mitochondria approximately per hepatocyte. Myocyte, so heart, 5,000. So your ovaries are literally the eyes like the eyes in your body that can't see, but they're always looking for threat. 
So if you are in a long fast, this is going to be like, it's probably not a good time to ovulate. There doesn't seem to be a lot of food for the baby. So I'm going to just like, we'll skip this month. We'll see how we do next month. I'll just not. I'll just not. Yeah. I just not. It's a nope. Can we not? Yeah. <laughs> They're going to be like, can we not? This is, she's, no, there's no food. So I don't like long fasts here. So I typically, and it sounds like you do the same, I intermittent fast daily. I typically try to limit my food sort of towards the end of the day before I go to sleep. I usually eat almost immediately after I train in the morning because that's just what works for me. But I typically will do like a 12, 12, or maybe a 10, 14, something like that this week. Um, What was the other thing I wanted to make sure I mentioned? Cardio, cardio. Oh, cardio. Yes, thank you. So cardio, this is where... It gets a little... So I'm a really big fan of all cardio, not throwing shade. You should always do cardio. It helps with your cardiopulmonary system, longevity, everything. The type of cardio that you do through your cycle also matters. So this week in particular, we mentioned that we have that surge of estrogen. And this was became very apparent to me, even when I was still in practice, I would change the way I was adjusting patients based on where they were in their menstrual cycle. Because estrogen makes your ligaments lax and it makes your tendons stiff. So lax is just like a fancy word for loosey-goosey if you're not familiar with that term. So you are more prone to injury with more burst type motion this week. So if you're doing like sprints, burpees, anything where it's kind of like more high intensity interval training, the moves that you typically see in a hit session. Box jumps. Box jumps, exactly. More likely to damage the ligaments. And we actually see this in the literature with athletes where we see more catastrophic injury to the ACL ligament. That's kind of what's been studied in female athletes in and around that pre-ovulatory week leading up, coming up to ovulation. So you can still do cardio for all my cardio bunnies listening. I just like it to be more steady state. So low intensity, steady state. I talk about it in terms of zones. So like zone one and two, even three is appropriate. And that's, I like that. I like those zones as my base for cardio because that's kind of where life happens, right? We go for walks in zone one. We move and we garden in zone one, maybe two. We, when you're moving homes, let's say, or you're cleaning the kitchen, it's like zone one, maybe it'll touch a zone two. So I think if you train the zone where most of your life happens, I think that that's also really important. So you can do any type of, training any type of cardio in week one, whatever suits your fancy. Just in week two, I love my ladies to abstain from HIT because of that estrogen piece where we see the ligaments are a little bit uh, more lax, but it also lends to heavy lifting, right? Because the tendons are now stiff. And of course, the tendons are what cross the bone. It's what attaches the muscle to the bone. And you can withstand a heavier weight, right? Because of that stiffness that the tendon has this week. So those are the considerations for cardio there as well. You know, as some of my colleagues, you know, like we nerd out on this with our cycle when where I live in Portland, Oregon, skiing is really big. Right. And a girlfriend of mine, I happened to run into a girlfriend of mine. This was two years ago at a restaurant. She'd blown out her knee skiing and she goes, I should have known better. I was pre-ovulatory. And I knew what that meant. Yeah, yeah. So she had gone to make a quick turn while skiing and blew out her knee Mm -hmm. in the process. It was that quick burst a lot of pressure on the knee force and down she went. There's nothing worse than having an injury, especially if you're someone who loves training. Like if she loves skiing Mm -hmm. and she knew it could have been avoided, there's nothing worse than injuring yourself when you knew it was avoidable. And it doesn't mean she didn't have to ski. She could have skied, but just know her 
like maybe don't hit those black diamonds, you know, like maybe don't try to keep up with her teenage sons that week because she's more at risk for knee injury. And it happened to her. And the famous story is it the 2016 soccer, uh, U.S. Olympic soccer team trained to their menstrual cycle because, of course, soccer players have a lot of burst movement. And their trainer was really trying to work with them on where they were in their cycle. And this is something we will address later. It doesn't mean when nothing that Stephanie is saying is not ever or never. Yes. And we will talk about training two as opposed to just stopping completely. But I want to move on to week three. So now we have ovulated, the egg is released, and she's floating through the fallopian spheres. (laughs) What is happening now as we move into week three with your hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and what do you feel now with exercise and nutrition? Great. So just as a side note, this was like a shock to my upbringing as a Catholic, but (laughs) you can't actually get pregnant all month long. I don't know. You cannot, (laughs) but they'll tell you that in school. (laughs) They Well, we've said that we've talked about this, but I used to think that going into a pool, I was going to get pregnant. And this is like, I don't know, like hopefully it's, it's changed. Obviously I haven't been in the Catholic school system for a long time, but I was like, oh my God, I can get pregnant all the time. That egg depending on your age, is kind of viable between somewhere between like four and let's say 24 hours. Hours. About a day. Hours. 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 Not, I mean, days, yes, because you can, the sperm can kind of live there for a couple of days beforehand. But that egg, she's there for like a day. Mm -hmm. She's just making an appearance. (laughs) She's literally a celebutant who has been paid to make an appearance. Yes. And then she leaves. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. So let's assume that you've ovulated. So that egg is sort of floating in that, what did you call it? The folliculus sphere? (laughs) The the fallopian sphere. (laughs) The fallopian sphere. And so now what we're seeing is a completely different hormonal environment. Whereas the first two weeks was all about the development of the follicle, that job is now done, right? So now we are moving into the follicle now we actually stop calling it the follicle. It's now we refer to it as the corpus luteum and then it will start to release progesterone. So this is the first time in your cycle where you start to see progesterone rising. Now, before we get to that, we talked about estrogen in week two. We said it's high, this meteoric rise, and then it kind of dips down again, right? So it's really interesting because you see week one, the first half of week one kind of look like the first half of week Three, because we have this drop in estrogen and then it comes back up again. Now it doesn't come back up as high as it did in week two. We'll sort of see the steady secretion of estrogen for the second half of the third week into the second half of the fourth week. But it's an interesting parallel. Like they kind of look similar there. And then as I mentioned, progesterone is now being released and we'll start to see progesterone reach its, depending on your cycle, it'll be the second, let's say it'll reach its peak by the end of week three, beginning of week four. So we will usually say day 22, day 21-ish, assuming a cycle of 28 days. But of course, if your cycle is longer than that, then it'll, it won't be on day 22. It'll be a little later than that. And I've mentioned this already with progesterone, but appetite stimulant slows down your bowels, helps with kind of helping you feel a bit chilled out as well. So you may notice in that week three with that rising estrogen that you will have a better sleep. This does change in week four, but for a lot of women, they often will report once they start paying attention to it, that week three, as you're kind of going up that mountain of progesterone rising, that their sleep is getting better and better and better. So in terms of food and training, because it looks like week one, we actually repeat week one again. So I like to come back to more of a ketogenic 
style diet, but there's a couple of caveats. So first, if we're doing, let's say a 70, 20, 10, again, like a 70% fat, 20% protein, 10% carbohydrate, I do like to add in resistant starches here. And I talk about resistant starches, almost ad nauseum in the book, but <laughs> resistant starches are basically starches that resist digestion. So it's you're having more carbohydrates without having more carbohydrates. And this will help to feed the colonocytes in the microbiome. It helps with sleep. It helps with a whole, it helps with, you know, hyperpermeability of the gut. One of the big things that most women will say is, oh, I've tried keto before. I was able to do it for a couple of weeks and then I couldn't. Like at week three or four, I just raided the pantry. Like I've never been able to stay on it more than a couple of weeks. And the reason for that is because the colonocytes or the gut microbiome, let's say, which people may be more familiar with that term, are sending out a distress signal, right? Because they haven't had the carbohydrates that like the, what they're used to getting. So they're sending up like a, hey, we're dying over here. And of course we know that there's a punt, very strong gut brain axis. There's a very strong connection between the gut and the brain. It's often called the second brain. And this is why you're looking for the chips and the cookies and the crackers is because your gut microbiome is dying essentially. So when you have resistant starches, this is a food source for these critters. And when you feed them, they're happy right? They're not sending those craving signals out anymore. It's like me. (laughs) (laughs) When you feed me, I'm happy. (laughs) There was a meme the other day and I sent it to my husband, Giovanni. And I was like, this is totally us. It was like a panda with its hands on its hips. And it's like, oh, and there was like a, someone from the zoo that was like bringing food to feed the panda. And the panda was like, oh, you're bringing me food to end this fight. You thought that that was going to work. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that's totally me. If you feed me, I'm yours, right? Love it. So resistant starches, we're feeding the microbiome. You're doing a a ketogenic style diet again. And I will put the caveat in there that not all ketogenic diets are the same. They're not all created equal. I really am a big advocate for plant-heavy So lots of green leafy vegetables. And I don't know if we have time to get into estrogen metabolism and like diendylmethanes and sulforaphanes, but it really does. And the estrobolone, but when you're consuming more green leafy vegetables, you are optimizing for estrogen metabolism. So you're going down that, and I'm sure you've talked about this on the show before, but that hydroxylation path, that two hydroxy estrogen pathway, and then the sulforaphanes are going to be helping with conjugation, which is phase two of estrogen metabolism and detoxification in general. So again, returning back to that moderate rep range, so that eight to 12 again, again, to complement the estrogen changes there. Again, heavy weights, but it's like eight reps, right? Or 12 reps or 10 reps. Then we're into week four, which is kind of that we have that half half of the first week, we have high progesterone, high estrogen. And then there's this, again, this big drop, this like catastrophic big drop in estrogen and progesterone. And then we start to bleed. And you mentioned something before that I thought was, and I wanted to just circle back to it because I thought it was probably very similar to what many women who are listening experience, which is like, you tell your friends to buy the chocolate because if they don't get their hands on some, you're going to buy the store out. All of it. All of it. And I think when we're talking about this week, so many of us have been taught to just eat the same way all through the month. This is the week where you should not do that. So you are going to be hungrier because progesterone now has been around for the longest amount of time that it has. So we talked about already, it's a potent stimulator of your appetite. You should be having more protein this week because protein is very satiating, right? It helps you feel fuller for longer. You also should be increasing your calories. And I know that many women that are listening are like, what did she just say? I'm trying to lose weight. Did she say increase? Yes, I said, increase your calories. 
I'm not talking about doubling your calories. I'm talking about a 10 to 20% increase in your calories. So let's say you're consuming, I don't know, 1800 calories a day or 1700 calories a day. 10% of that is 170 calories. That's it. It's not a lot. Okay. So, but it is enough to satisfy the energetic requirements of your body. And the reason why I say that you should increase your caloric intake is because your caloric expenditure is now at a frenetic pace. You are trying to create this five-star hotel in your womb for this fertilized egg. So there's nutrients there. Your body is working to get that endometrial lining really thick, right? And it's building it up with a lot of blood and a lot of minerals, and a lot of nutrients, all the things it's pulling, the zinc, the selenium, the glutathione, like it's pulling everything. You as the mother, even if you're as the host, if you will, you as the woman require more calories for that process to happen. Even if you don't want to get pregnant. Correct. Right. Like even if you're listening to this thinking, I don't want to build a five-star hotel. I'm not looking to get pregnant. Your body doesn't know that. And doesn't care. It doesn't care. Yeah. Yeah, It's a better, even better way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. She does not care. Yeah. She's going to build Rome whether or not you're going to go to the Coliseum. So you have to increase your calories. And this is where that whole idea of like having reverence for your physiology is important. Whether or not you want the child or the pregnancy is irrelevant. It's what's happening in your body. So can you surrender to this idea that this is what your body requires and expects from you right now? The other piece that I think is really important to mention is the PMS piece. So a lot of women will feel more sensitive this week. They'll feel moodier. Sleep is disturbed. They haven't gone to the bat. They haven't had a bowel movement maybe in a day or, or more. And what I have noticed, this is true of myself and the patients that I've counseled, is that this week it's like everything is wrong. And the husband can't do anything right. Your children are driving you up the wall. You could strangle your boss. Your mother is driving, like she's annoying you way more than she normally does and should. And I think that this is important insofar as this is a signal in a way, and this is me getting a little woo, but this is a signal in a way for you to be paying attention to the areas in your life that you are misaligned in. So if you could strangle your boss and it always happens that you just cannot stand your boss or your coworker or whatever, in this three to four day period in week four, this is your body's way of telling you that this is stressing you out. So maybe there's a conversation that needs to happen. Maybe there's a job change that needs to happen. I was in practice for 16 years and I can tell you that yes, there's always a mechanical component to pain. But the other thing that usually needed to change was the partner or the job. And I know that that's a really tough thing to hear. And it's not 100% of the time. It's not always like that. But most of the time, more than 50% of the time, there was a job that was sucking the soul out of this woman or man, or there was a conversation to be had with a family member that was persistent and causing this low-grade inflammation in this person, or there was boundaries that weren't being set or whatever, right? Like you go down the list of things that these people were not taking care of their mental and their emotional health. And so I would just invite you, if you're listening to this and you're like, God, every... Every time my husband walks by me that week, maybe there's some residue there that your body is maybe pointing you to try and clear up so that you can have a better period and have a better menstrual cycle in its totality. So you don't have to do that part. That's optional. I'm not going to show up if you at your door if you don't do it, but just, <laughs> just suggesting that maybe, you know, I've talked to so many people on, on my show around 
physical, and this is, has to do more with like, I spoke to people who spent a lot of time with indigenous tribes and their view on health and healing. And this is in the context, of course, of psychedelics, which we won't go into today, but so many of these sort of ancient cultures believe that you get sick spiritually and emotionally first, and then it shows up in the body. Yeah. Now, is that the same for every single disease? Of course it isn't. However, I think that if we pay a little bit more attention to our mental, emotional, and spiritual health, and we sort out those cobwebs, then we will be better physically. And that will translate to you having a better period as well. A hundred percent. Amen. I was in practice like you for many, many years, predominantly seeing women, women's health and hormones is what I did. And I would say you said this, your just personal practice statistic was maybe over 50%. It's either the job or a personal relationship, partner, family, et cetera. And I would, I would argue it's probably a lot higher than that, judging by the number of women that I would have come in and collapse and pour their heart out to me around what's going on in their life. And then they'd be like, oh no, by the way, here are my hormonal symptoms. And I would say. Right. You know that these two are related. Yeah. Right. Like, do you think there's any chance that two of these things are related? Yeah. Because I do as an outsider. And it's just like when you're listening to your sister or your very best friend, And as the outsider, you can see it clearly, right? As the outsider, you can go, well, you realize that's connected. But when you're in it and living it, it can be really hard and you feel like you're in quicksand or you feel like you're in a fog. It's harder to see. But take what Dr. Stephanie says to heart because she has a lot of experience with this and has talked to a lot of people and spent a lot of years of practice. And she's not wrong. She's not wrong. So absolutely. It's one of those things where you can't read the label of the jar you're in. Yes. <laughs> like, how can you see it? If it's right in front of you and written backwards, how can you see it? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, one of the questions I brought up earlier was, can you train to any of this? So for example, if somebody's listening and says, okay, that's great, but I run 5Ks or I, I am competing in a CrossFit competition or I am an athlete and I don't really have a choice as to when my soccer game is or when I have to run track and push off the block. And so it could affect my knees. Does it mean you're doomed? Like, can you train to this? Can you improve to this? What do you tell those, the heavy exercisers, the athletes, those who are concerned about everything you've been talking about? Yeah, I think it's everything is on a continuum, right? This is not an absolute. Mm -hmm. So if you have a track meet or a soccer game, in a less than ideal, and I'm using air quotes if you're listening to this on audio, in a less than ideal time of your cycle, you can still perform. It's the off training. So on training day, like on show day or when it's really important, you can go all out. But what I'm talking about is the chronicity of this. So if you're only ever training one way all the way through your cycle, this is when we are going to start to run into issues. And of course, you know that if you're a runner, let's say, or you're a cyclist or you're any type of athlete, that it's really your training that makes or breaks you. Like the show day is like, it's one day, right? It's like the one, and yes, maybe you want to be a bit more mindful of your knee, let's say, if it's in that week too. But if you have to perform, you have to show up that day and perform. Like you don't have a choice, but it's the training in the times where you're not racing, where you're not racing for a medal, where you can really take a lot of this information and tether it to your training schedule. And you can modulate the way that you're training through your cycle. And then you show up for your training the day that you're racing, and you're just going to go all out that day. And I've even read before, which I love this. One of the things that we didn't talk about is in that week four leading up to your period, that progesterone makes you clumsy. It can make you clumsier. It changes your saltwater balance, which can affect where your brain thinks you are in space. And therefore, so if you are 
like I am a prime example. My husband is real other than eating all the chocolate in the house. I drop things constantly. I am not allowed to have expensive glassware because inevitably in week four, I'll break it. So he's, but if you're training for something or if you're an athlete or a ballerina or something, just know that in week four, if you feel clumsier, whereas the week prior, you were like, I don't understand. I hit all my cues. I hit all my marks. And this week I feel like a failure. You're not a failure. You're in week four, a little clumsier. So what I tell my athletes is you're going to train harder on the fine motor skills this week. So if you're a gymnast, like if you're, I was back when we're watching the Olympics and on, you're on the balance beam, week four, you're going to train extra hard on the balance beam. If you're a runner, you're going to train really hard when you push off the block that you don't trip or feel clumsy, or if you're a hurdler, right? A hurdler, exactly. That you don't crash into the hurdles. And the reason is, is that when, if you have a meet or a competition and it's not week four, you will have trained at your worst point for clumsiness that by the time you, if you happen to have a competition in week one, two or three, you are just amazing because you've already been trained up so well in your worst week that imagine you in your best week. And I love that you said it's on a continuum because I think we all need to hear that. Nothing's absolute. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that there is too much discussion around absolutes. Everything that we've talked about today, you can take one thing and apply it to your life. And if that makes it marginally or significantly better, then we've won, right? (laughs) The podcast has won. Like that's, you don't have to take a hundred percent of it. You can take a piece of it and you can take another piece later, right? So again, we're in a continuum of time and space. Like you don't have to do everything all the time perfectly. Makes sense. And that's kind of another, for women, I think so many of us, and I'm speaking more to like my type A really driven women, we don't allow for that. We don't allow for rest, recovery, or even the opportunity to fail. Like there's, I mean, that's the worst effort that you can tell a woman who is more of that type A kind of categorically driven and achievement oriented. She cannot allow herself to be a beginner. She cannot allow herself to fail because it's too catastrophic to the way that she thinks about herself. But that's what we're all, nobody knows what we're doing. Just like secret, none of us know what we're doing. (laughs) We're all winging it. Yeah, we're all winging it. I mean, maybe some of us have a little bit more experience or depth of knowledge in a certain area, but we are all just trying to figure out, we are floating around on a rock in space, no idea where we're going. You know, I recently read that even the sun, like even the way that we learn, the sun is just kind of like, there and then all the planets like move around it. Even the sun is working on its own orbit. And so the way that the sun is like traveling through space, it makes our orbits more like spirals rather than like ovals. So we just, none of us know what we're doing. So for my type A, I call you my type A Bettys, my boardroom Bettys, just forgive yourself. Try to find a way to give yourself some grace. Try to find a way to speak to yourself as if you were the six-year-old girl, scared little girl, and I'm talking more about myself now, like who didn't know what the future held, things felt really uncertain. Like try to speak to that person because she's still there. She's still there inside you somewhere, begging to be heard. Always. Yeah, and I think if you had, if you started to develop that reverence for yourself and all the things that you've been through, all the things that you've, whether it was traumatic and that you survived through it or and now you're thriving, like try to find some a little bit more grace and love for yourself and giving yourself a bigger runway to achieve the things that you're looking to do. And that applies to all ages, even though we're talking predominantly about cycling women today and the week, the four weeks through cycling, this applies to all women, even menopausal women. Yes. Absolutely. And what you just said. 100%. 
And actually speaking to menopausal women, last question before we wrap up, I have to ask, because I'm going to get asked when menopausal women say, but I don't have a cycle. Or if somebody has had a complete hysterectomy and they're like, I don't have a cycle. Do I, how do I train? Do I train any differently? Are my hormones different? Great question. I get asked this. This is like the second question that I'm always asked. And I love menopause. I think that we, as a society, we have just made this like this horrible thing. And I think that if you're smart about it, it can be, it's like the second spring, right? It's like the second spring of your, it's like your golden years where you know exactly who you are. You're not willing to put up with any more shit. You're living life for yourself. So I think in terms of all the material and theories that we've been talking about today in terms of how hormones change and like what some practical applications and takeaways are, you can still do all of what we're talking about, but now you're not following a reproductive cycle. I mentioned at the top of the podcast, men are the sun, women are the moon. I actually think following a lunar cycle is quite beautiful because we are, when we look at the moon and its pull and its effect on earth, I mean, obviously we know that it has effects on the water, the tides, right? High tide, low tide. It also, just a little nerd fact for a moment, it also stabilizes our seasons. So it stabilizes the way that the earth spins on its axis. And because of that, stabilizes our seasons so that they're predictable. So if you think that you're not affected by the moon, (laughs) you're wrong. (laughs) So I, (laughs) to be blunt, (laughs) so I love, even now as a cycling woman, I will follow when it's the new moon. So there's no moon in the sky. It's like black. I have a certain ritual. I'm setting intentions around the full moon, of course. I have new intentions and new things that I... So I think it's lovely for women who are in the prime of their life to become more connected to who we are. We are of this earth, not just living on top of it. We come from this earth. We are carbon creatures. So if we are able to connect to some of the cycles of the moon that we are inextricably affected by... I think that all of the talk around changing the way that you train and changing the way that you eat, I think is all applicable to a menopausal woman as well. The only thing that doesn't really apply is the cardio changes because now you don't have that high and low estrogen. Your estrogen's pretty consistent through the entire month. So you can do like you're in that way, you behave more like a man in that you can do that burst training whenever you want. You can do the the high intensity interval training as it pleases you, which is also in some ways a bit more freedom. You don't have to be thinking like, where am I in my cycle, et cetera. Which is really helpful for a lot of menopausal women, right? Because they're going through so many physiologic changes just moving into menopause that it's nice to know that they don't have to confuse or compound their exercise from cycling to no cycle. They have a lot more options. Right, yeah. And it's much easier in many ways to be a menopausal woman. Like there's less complexity, which is, Lovely because when you're 50 plus, that's kind of what we want. We're like, let's just make it simple. I've spent the last 20 years raising children, maybe raising a husband. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to do something for myself now. So can we be simple about it? And I think that that's the same comments would apply here. And I think that with the weight training, I mentioned this before, I think it's just worth mentioning one more time is you don't have to have an elaborate training program. You can literally do the same program all through the month. And I highly recommend that you do very similar program for many, many months at a time. It's just you're modulating the way that you're lifting those weights, like how heavy those weights are is what's changing. Because so often on Instagram and whatever, you see these sort of fitness influencers who are doing just ass backwards things that you would never, you know that they didn't do to get the body that they did. Like they're squatting and lunging and hip thrusting and doing pull motions and pull and push motions 
all day long. It's like same squat, different shirt, right? That's what I like to say. It's like, we're squatting every lots and lots of times a week. You're just changing, obviously, your shirt. So don't be fooled by how complicated fitness has to be. It shouldn't be complicated. And in fact, you should be training and trying to master a squat. That's another thing I'll just say, I know I'm going on, but I will say that in my practice, I do have to say this because it was such a, it was so disappointing to me that when I would test, so I would test everybody. So there would be an in baseline intake test that we would do on all patients. One of them was doing a push up on your toes. And one of them was doing a squat and the other one was a wall squat. So meaning that you're sitting against the wall and we're timing how long you can stay there. Most women could not do a push up that was not on their knees more than one time, if that. Most women, like almost 100% of women were like, oh no, I do ladies push-ups. I'm like, what's that? What's a ladies push-up? On your knees. Yeah, no, I know it is. But I was like, yeah, how no. dare you call that a right. ladies push-up? You know? <laughs> so I was like, no, we're going to test you on your knees. And they would able to do it. And then the squatting, everybody doesn't know how, to, almost everybody doesn't know how to squat. They basically just hinge forward at the hip rather than sitting down, right? So knee, hip, ankle mobility, nobody had that. And then the wall squat, which is just an isometric hold, we would see them failing more often than not before 90 seconds. Mm. So these are really important longevity. These are also like predictors of longevity as well. Upper body strength for women is super important. You want to be able to pick up your grandkids. You want to be able to, hopefully you're, you're traveling somewhere gorgeous every year. So you want to be able to hold your valise or your baggage and put it in the overhead compartment. These are life skills, right? So training right. the upper body for women, very, very important. And then also the strength and the endurance of the lower body. So I know I went over there, but I just wanted to wanted to make sure that we got to that. And that is also critical for women of all ages, not just menopause. Everybody. Correct. Everybody is failing these. And so it's important. You mentioned the cardio bunnies earlier, but if everyone needs to practice these. Right now, listeners, can you do a push-up from your toes, on your toes, not on your knees? Can you do a proper squat? If you sit against the wall and squat down, how long can you hold it? I think these are really important. So so here's an Easter egg. Here's an Easter egg that we're going <gasps> to give for your listeners. Oh, gosh. The ones that are still listening, if you can do a push-up, more than one push-up on your toes, tag Carrie and myself at Dr. Carrie Jones, at Dr. Stephanie Estima, hashtag Root Cause Medicine Podcast. If you could do more than one push-up, I want to see it. Oh my gosh. Me too. Me too. We have to do a competition. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, Dr. Stephanie Estima, this has been absolutely fabulous. Where can people find you, learn from you, your book? Tell them all the things. All the things. Yeah. So the book is called The Betty Body, named after my podcast, which is Better. So our better fans are the Bettys. So The Betty Body, you can find it at Amazon. You can find it at Barnes & Noble, anywhere, anywhere online. You can find me online on Instagram at Dr. First Name, Last Name. So Stephanie Estima which I'm sure you'll put in the notes, but it's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-E-S-T-I-M-A. And then I also have a podcast where Carrie has been on, not once, you've been on twice. Twice, yes. Two times on the show. Mm -hmm. One of the top, I should also say, just throwing some kudos to you, what top 10, the second time you came on, top 10 episode, which is of all time. So like top downloads, people have listened to it to the end, like all the way through the most oh versus other ones. Yeah, so you're... My Bettys love you every time. My goodness. Yeah. And that's also when you hit a big milestone too, right? Your downloads are... Yeah, I think... I don't know the number exactly right now, but I think we're at 2.5 million downloads. It's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you again so much for being on the Root Cause Medicine podcast. I think everyone is blown away 
by all the information you've given, but now they have a much better idea of cycle syncing, their menstrual cycle, all their four weeks with exercise, nutrition, and all the things because it's just so important. And I appreciate you being on. Well, thank you for having me. I always love the time that, because you and I are just like super nerds and you get my jokes and it's always... (laughs) I mean, that's so important. If I can make a joke and you laugh, I mean, I've won. So thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.